All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 101 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Sarah Clooster, and with me today are my friends, Leah Henning and Christina Bieber-Lake. Hello, ladies, and let's introduce ourselves for anyone who's new to the program. Christina, why don't you start? Sure. I'm Christina Bieber-Lake. I've been teaching at Wheaton College in the English department for 20 years. Um, I'm happily not in Wheaton, Illinois right now because it's cold there, and I'm in sunny California, so I'm in a very good mood right now and happy to be talking about Ellen Ripley, who is a great character. Wonderful. Leah, what about you? Hi, my name is Leah Henning. I'm currently living in St. Paul, Minnesota, where it is a balmy 40 degrees right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I have a master's degree in early modern European history from Loyola University in Chicago. Um, and I'm excited to talk about Ellen Ripley as well, even though I'm a big scaredy cat when it comes to scary movies. Well, you are in good company for that, Leah. I am as well. Um, my name is Sarah Clister. I am a librarian, and I live in Fort Worth. Today, uh, we are going to dis- be discussing the wonderful science fiction heroine Ellen Ripley from the Alien franchise. Listeners, you may remember that it was about a year ago or so that the three of us here, Christina, Leah, and I, I'll discuss Princess Leia from Star Wars. So we're just we're making our way through those great heroines of science fiction. We're glad that you are here to uh, be with us on this journey. The original Alien movie is from 1979. It was directed by Ridley Scott. The second movie in the franchise is from 1986 and is directed by James Cameron. So you, you can kind of see that like they're always about two years after one of the a very successful Star Wars movie. And then like, haha, we should make a we should make a science fiction movie. Aha, we should make a science fiction sequel. That could make us a lot of money. There are six films in the entire franchise. Uh, there are four um, alien films and then there are two prequels. And I am aware that lots of things got retconned into the first two movies by sequels and prequels, but we're going to we're gonna be ignoring those. Um, and so we are going to be talking in depth about both Alien and Aliens. So if you don't like spoilers, I don't really care. It's a 40-year-old movie. <laughs> Go watch both <laughs> of them and send us an email and tell us what you think. Um, so ladies... Tell me, uh, tell me what you thought. What were you? What were? What did you know about the movies? What are your under? When did you first see them? Christina, tell us. Well, I was actually eleven years old when Alien came out, the first one, and we had just returned to the United States. My dad was in the military, and uh, we were living in the Panama Canal zone, and we had just returned to the United States. So I was kind of overwhelmed by the amount of media at that point, anyway. And all I remember, I did certainly did not go to see it because I was definitely a scaredy cat at that time and I was only 11. But all I remember was the advertisement, which had just that egg 
and, and the saying underneath it, in space, no one can hear you scream. And I said to myself, I am never going to see that film. <laughs> it, it terrified me. So it wasn't until many years later, I think it was after the second one came out, that I finally said, okay, I, I'm old enough. I can go and, you know, I can deal with this now. And then I, I saw those two at the same time um, around 1986, 87. So <clears throat> I've seen them both since uh, a few times each, but I don't really remember my initial responses to them, actually, except for that advertisement that scared me to death. <laughs> what about you, Leah? Well, as I have already admitted, I am just a scaredy cat when it comes to movies. Um, so I never actually watched them uh, until about two years ago with my boyfriend for Valentine's Day. We decided to watch Alien together, me for That's the first so time. Did you really? Did I, he just want to have a reason to cuddle? Um, get real close. That was the reason, wasn't it, Leah? Uh, that's probably his reason. Mine was, I, I like to watch action movies on Valentine's Day, because that's how I roll. Um, All right. <laughs> yeah, so we watched it then. That was my first time. His, like, I don't know how many times watching it. Um, and I loved it. But I was hiding under a blanket for quite a bit of the movie. <laughs> um, I I loved it. I loved the Ripley, of course, um, and all of the jump scares, even though it, it seemed like a cruel joke on me. Um, and I actually didn't watch Aliens until about a week ago for this episode. And again, I was absolutely terrified. I had a blanket handy, but I loved it. I, the story and the characters just kind of draw you in. And the filming is wonderful as well. Um, and of course, I knew about Alien and Aliens. Everybody knows the reference to the alien coming out of the chest Um and also, everybody knows that line, game over, man, game over. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had been too afraid to watch until about two years ago. <laughs> well, I have to admit, Leah, I am pretty much the exact same as you. So listeners, you have three absolutely, three absolute scaredy cats talking about this horror movie. <laughs> and I was... I've never been a big horror movie fan. The times when I was dragged to one in high school, I missed most of the movie because I would hide behind my hands. And so for movies like uh, Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon and a lot of those, I actually don't get very scared because I barely see any of the actual film. And so about two years or so ago, I decided I need to watch these movies. I like science fiction. I love Star Wars. I love all of these other science fiction things. And so I, I put it on Netflix and I was going to see it. And it came in and I was terrified. <laughs> and, and I knew that it was supposed to be scary because how could you, like, even though I didn't actually know very much about it, I, I just, I knew it was a horror movie because you, you can see that picture of that very creepy egg on mm -hmm. the poster. And it's like, yeah, this, this is a monster movie. This is, this is, this is really scary. Right. And so I think that it's just incredibly fascinating that something that is, that a movie can be so good that it can make me enjoy a genre that I actively dislike. 
And I know we'll talk a little bit later uh, uh, that I will posit that the movies, that even though they're both science fiction, they're different genres of film. Um, mm-hmm. And so one first one is a horror and the second one I would posit is a war, is a, uh, war movie, and, but we can get into that later. Um, and I, yeah, I enjoyed it. And then when I told my husband that this, I was going to be hosting this episode, he just got, th- he was thrilled because he is the biggest sci-fi nerd and periodically when there are movies or books that I haven't seen then or read he's just he looks at me he's like why it's like it's so lucky that you can cook woman i'm like yeah 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 um and so <laughs> he was very excited to watch these again with me but still i am 33 i'm in i'm like sitting on the couch with my husband a blanket and my giant rottweiler and i'm still scared right that i had to go <laughs> watch like i had to watch it one during the day i couldn't watch them at night and then i had to like I had to like de-stress by watching like two hours of Great British Bake Off to like put <laughs> me in like a good happy <laughs> mood again. <laughs> so, um, and I really hope one day that we do an episode over Bake Off because oh, I could wax poetic for hours over that show. Anyway, um, Christina, why don't you give us a little bit of plot overview for these two movies? Sure. The uh, 1979 original film, Alien, um, has Ripley uh, in second, second in command of a cargo vessel that's heading home. And they had been in hypersleep and they were awakened prematurely by the computer so that they could investigate a strange beacon that turns out to be a warning. But that by the time they figure out it's a warning, it's too late. They have encountered this alien life form that invades the ship by putting them putting the you know thing on their face and implanting gestating the alien baby inside of the person exploding out and so forth and then a fight long fight ensues and Ripley ends up being the only survivor of the entire crew of that cargo ship and and it's a very simple plot because that's the way that horror and sci-fi horror works um, and aliens is also a simple plot that we pick up Ripley later because she's been as we find out she's been asleep for I think it's like 50 years and um, kind of only accidentally discovered just in time by a passing vessel and she wakes up it gets waked up only to discover that this location that that they had discovered the aliens on had been colonized by humans and so then we find out very quickly that no one has heard from this colony in a long time so somehow, and for some reason, she agrees to go down there. Um, and it's, it's really a, one of her many acts of courage where she agrees that she'd do that with the condition that they destroy the aliens completely. And so she goes down there. They end up rescuing, an important part of the plot is they end up rescuing a little girl. And um, only a few of them end up escaping, really just the three of them end up escaping from that. And she ends up asleep again at the end in hypersleep. So that's, that's how they go. Excellent. Um, Leah, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, this is two movies uh, spanning quite a number of years in terms of making them and everything. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the casting and maybe some of the production and the reception for those movies? Absolutely. Um, so Alien, as we've mentioned before, is the first of a franchise of films. So it hit theaters in 1979, directed by Ridley Scott. 
Uh, the first film starred in no particular order, Tom Skerritt, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stanton, John Hurt, Yafet Koto, Sigourney Weaver, and Ian Holm. Uh, it took an estimated $10 million budget to create the science fiction horror masterpiece, which ended up bringing in well over $100 million at the box office. Um, and from the get-go, as you can imagine, it was a hit. It won a Hugo Award, three Saturn Awards, and it did get an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects as well. Uh, it has since then gone down in history. It's even been chosen for preservation by the U.S. national film industry. Uh, and it did launch the career of Sigourney Weaver, who we could probably call a household name by this point. Um, by the time the second film, Aliens, came out in 1986, the franchise was actually already being established with comic books, novels, and toys um, hitting the market and kind of flooding the market, too. Uh, Aliens was directed by James Cameron because of his uh, role with uh, Terminator. Um, and then Gurney Weaver came back to reprise her role as Ellen Ripley alongside Carrie Henn. Michael Bain, Paul Reiser, uh, Jeanette Goldstein, and a smattering of others. I'm sorry to anyone if I skipped a favorite actor of yours, but the, the list was quite long. <laughs> um, like with the first film, the budget was relatively low at $18 million, while it earned around 10 times that worldwide. Um, it also won a Hugo Award eight Saturn Awards, and this time, this the second film got two Academy Awards, one for sound effects editing and the other for visual effects. So it's safe to say that both of these films are good films. They've earned their place in, uh, in film history. And I would also add that it's one of the few success, truly successful sequels of, you know, of that caliber of film. Totally. Well, there's a, there's a lot we can talk about for these movies. We'll totally get to it, but we can talk a little bit favorite scenes for a moment. So some of mine, uh, the most iconic scene, um, I'll go ahead and steal this for listeners. There's an incredibly famous scene, um, in which the alien kind of bursts through the chest of John Hurt and everybody's screaming. And it's, it's an amazing, uh, piece of cinematography because at the time this is all done through puppetry right and kind of sleight of hand camera tricks there's no they're not using a green screen to get this That's done right. and so to me those will that will always look better and always stands up better because it's an actual physical thing as opposed to you look at movies from the late 2000s where everyone was just super super in on uh, green screen characters and you can very easily tell that it's just it's not real, and so I I love I love the scene because it's it's this incredibly gory uh, scene, and one of the uh, the female actresses, um, not um, Veronica Cartwright, is really screaming out of genuine surprise and fear because she didn't realize that there was gonna be blood spattered everywhere. So this like shock and horror everybody has is 
really pretty genuine and so that, that's always nice. And then some of the other scenes that I, I really love for this, uh, these two movies, are as silly as this may sound, I, I, I kind of like the quieter scenes in these like action thrillers because to me the, that really shows character and character development. And so one of the many reasons I love Ripley is she is not a Mary Sue at all because there are things she doesn't know how to do and the things she can do, she does well, but you mm -hmm. see her, you see her learning. And so in the second movie, the character of a Hicks is, you know, like, Oh, you don't need to do that. And she's like, no, no, no. I want to know I can handle it. And mm -hmm. so later on when she's using a gun and, you know, being like completely amazing, that makes sense because she's been shown that she can do it. We saw her, we saw that, we saw her growing and like in what she can do and what she understands. And to me, that's what I love best is any character growing and uh, having those kind of quiet moments when they're like, aha, this is who, who she is. Um, I love it when she's like cuddling with a newt kind of under her bed, right? This very kind of protective motherly cocoon um, mm -hmm. for this young child that they found. And so those, those little quiet moments are, are some of my favorites. Uh, what about you ladies? What are some of your favorite moments? There was one from the second film that I just rewatched um, last night. And <laughs> one of the characters says to Ripley about some decision that she had made. I thought you'd be smarter than that. And she replies, I'm happy to disappoint you. <laughs> that just really got me this time. I loved it. That's a favorite moment. I also really like on the first film, like slash hate, um, the the when she finally gets in that escape pod and then the alien's head looks like part of the ship and she doesn't realize it's the alien because that's just an amazing moment because that tubular head of that alien matches the ship and it just appears out of nowhere and it is so truly frightening. So that's a great moment too. Oh, that is a good one. Um, I mean, I'm a sucker for Jonesy, which is Ripley's cat. <laughs> <laughs> so I would probably have to say that any scene with Jonesy in it is absolutely wonderful. Like, I was most concerned about Jonesy with the first mm -hmm. film. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, <laughs> as a more thought-out response to your very good question, Sarah, um, I think that the showdown between Ripley and the queen in mm -hmm. Aliens is one of my favorite scenes because there's just so much conveyed in mm -hmm. the undercurrent of that scene. Uh, it's Sigourney's expressions and also the animatronics. Um, and w there's no lines. There's no obvious information being fed to the audience to chew on. It's really all about the viewer's perception and imagination. And that's yet we a, all kind of come to the same conclusion. Yeah, that's a great point. They are managed to communicate that she is threatening the eggs and trying to back away by threatening the eggs, right? Mm -hmm. And But she can't succeed, so then she flames the eggs, right? She torches them, and then all hell breaks loose. It's so interesting. Well, one of the things I like about this scene and listeners, we love parts of the first movie too, and it's, they're all really great. 
one of the things I like a lot about that scene that when I was rewatching it for this is there's this like there's this moment where Ripley's standing there and she's you know she's with her daughter she's with her baby um, Newt and then she's mm-hmm. kind of looking at this you know completely alien completely alien <laughs> no pun intended this alien like giant waspy whatever right but it's it's female because it's you know it's the queen and there's the there's this like moment of like understanding that's not even it passes like human understanding and it's just like straight like female right yes yes that like mm-hmm. you that like you are threatening my child yeah so i will torch you and like and so obviously yep. like it's not the same because it's not like it's a cute teddy bear it's not like a bear or anything that we're like cuter but like there's still that moment where it even it crosses like a species understanding mm-hmm. right and it is just like female versus female mm-hmm. you threaten and, my young yeah yep. and then one last favorite scene like oh th- we love things from the first movie and i don't know why we keep saying the second one uh when she's in her little like Chekhov's gun of like um exoskeleton I think it's so cool that, like, to really, like, get this, like, alien queen on the same level, she's, like, she puts on, like, an exos, mm-hmm. like, an exoskeleton, too. Mm-hmm. When she's in, yeah. like, a little animatronic or um, uh, lifter, driver, whatever that thing is, the, the little, mm-hmm. like, robot that she pilots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a wonderful moment, really getting eye to eye with the queen mm-hmm. um, and putting themselves on almost equal level of being a monster because I don't know about you guys but in that moment I kind of felt the queen being like what the heck is this (laughs) what 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 is going on you are so foreign you are an alien to me um in that moment I don't, maybe I'm reading. Let's hear it for thumbs, people. Let's hear it for thumbs. There you go. (laughs) So, um, one of the, one of the big, like, famous things that, like, people say about the movie, uh, is that, you know, Sigourney Weaver's initial role of Ripley, which we only really ever hear her called Ripley in the first movie. I don't think we get her first name established until the second one. Um, that, Originally, her part was supposed to be for a man, and then Mm -hmm. they decided, uh, you know what, we want to make this a female character. So, what what makes Rip? How does what makes Ripley different than a male protagonist in the same role? So, if they had picked, I'm going to pick someone from the 70s, like Richard Dreyfus. If they picked Richard Dreyfus for this role, I don't know. He's the first one I thought of, guys. What? How, you know, what makes her different? Is there, is she playing it different? Like, how would this character be different if a male were in the same role? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to speak to that because I, what I love about the first movie is that when the commander of the ship is outdoors and they have, the crew member has been attacked by the thing, um, she's then in command of the ship by the regulations. And he's like, we got to get this guy in. The commander says, let me in, let me in. And she's, no, that's breaking quarantine. You can't come in. And she just holds her ground. And she's not emotional. She's uh, very rational about it. This is the way it has to be. And and says no. And she doesn't change her mind. She never gets hysterical. Nothing. And and she does all of that without being an over-the-top masculinized character like you get in some of the characters in the second film. And I think that's just brilliant. 
because it shows that she makes decisions out of her intelligence and her level-headedness more than she does out of her emotions. And that's what struck, struck me as so significant, especially for 1979, to see that depicted that way. I completely agree. And think how many, think how many basically horror movies or science fiction movies would just end if people just respected quarantine protocol. <laughs> so true. But like the entire movie, like life, you know, like, no, just respect, respect quarantine protocol. <laughs> and we'd be fine, people. And the other thing I think is very interesting of that is, you know, Ripley, she, what's the normal assumptions? Like, well, the woman's going to be the very emotive. She's going to care about the health. And exactly. she's going to be, no, she is the, yeah. no, you will do, this is what it is. I'm in charge. And she is very calm. You're right. And it's, it's the guy, it's the man who's like, think about the, think about the feelings. You know him, have some emotion. And she's just like, mm -hmm. no. And so I, I find that, I find that very, very interesting right there. What do you think, Leah? Oh, I love it. I, I would agree with all of that. Although I would probably also add that having her play the role brings more of an emotional aspect to mm -hmm. it. In the way that maybe because women are expected to be more in tune with emotions, um, the way that Sigourney kind of plays off those more quiet moments mm -hmm. um, kind of makes it feel more human. Like she's a real person, whereas if it was played by a man it would be another action movie like just another action movie mm -hmm. i think that's especially true of the second one right oh, because definitely. Of the, the the addition of the the child and all the mother stuff that we had already talked a little bit about um it's also so interesting because she's such, such a great judge of character like she figures out that this guy the science officer is not you know right in the head and um, eventually discovers that he's an android. And the first time that you really get emotion from Ripley is when she finds out that, oh my goodness, uh, the crew is expendable. Then she really gets super emotional in a way that I, I remember thinking that's an appropriate emotional response where they've contrasted her to the other female character who kind of goes hysterical, right? To use that that term that has always been associated with women, right? Um, it's, it's a significant contrast between the two of them at that point. Oh, definitely. Like, in a way, she almost becomes the perfect balance between the masculine and feminine yes. tropes. Yes, where, where she is eye candy, right? Like, we, we get to see some great eye candy shots of Sigourney Weaver in both films. In um, her underwear, right? You of course. And, like, she's got great legs, everybody. Yeah, yes. Like, I'm jealous of her legs. But at, at the same time, most of the time she's walking around in a jumpsuit. Uh -huh. and, and she's wielding guns and heavy machinery. And she's making tough decisions. And shutting down men like uh -huh. she's interrupting them yes and, yes and shouting over them um so yeah i i think she's just meant to be that wonderful balance well and you, you see that 
obviously you see it a lot in the first movie. In the second movie, um, when she, uh, when the, uh, the, uh, the officer in charge is like completely like losing it because he, he's never, you know, that's one of the things that I find really fun about this kind of this much more like this war movie that they have for, for aliens mm -hmm. is the initial commanding officer, Lieutenant Gorham, He's never actually seen or done any of this stuff, right? Like she, no. first of all, when she's done with the, they they find her. They're you know they, they have this wonderful scene that like, hey, it's in like two thousand, it's in like twenty forty some or like two, twenty twenty four something. I don't know. It's several hundred years in the future. I don't know what we're gonna be calling it then. But like, they're all still wearing these. Like all the the business people are still wearing these like big eighty suits with ties. Yes, which I found really funny. But you have. So you have the, uh, but you have the executive officer um, who has no actual real experience, right? You know, he's just gone on a couple of simulations. He completely loses his head on the first moment. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, uh, Ripley kind of has to jump in and be like, look, if you're not going to save these people, I will. Right. Mm -hmm. Because he's just paralyzed with fear. And she knows, like, she has experience. She knows what these things can do. And these very kind of macho even the females, right? Like, even mm -hmm. in the second movie, uh, Vasquez. like, Vasquez is just, mm -hmm. like, the 100% stereotype of, like, the very butch, um, mm -hmm. you know, military police officer uh, kind of female. And, you know, and and she is a female. Like, they, you know, they're, they're, there's no, they're not playing like she isn't. But, like, you know, she's doing, like, one-handed pull-ups, like, while she's smoking and stuff. Like, it's just, like, oh. <laughs> This, this woman is not picking me for her softball team. <laughs> um, and so it's, and so you can even see, like, even her character is like, oh, who's this, like, softy random person that they brought with us, right? Like, mm -hmm. and so, and you have, like, Bill Paxton as, like, Private Hudson, who is just the most, he's just the most emotional man. Um, and so he's kind of yes. playing the same. So over the top. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of playing the same character that um, Ver uh, that uh, Veronica Cartwright played as uh, Lambert Ooh. in the first one. That kind of like, ah, like freaking out. And so it's like, come on, man. <laughs> like, and so he is constantly basically being told to like, sit down and shut up and let the adults talk by yeah. Ripley. Because if not they would essentially be paralyzed by fear. And so she has this amazing ability to just, you know, she has, she has natural kind of command, right? Mm -hmm. As they, they talk yeah. about that a lot. And so my question to you ladies is if you, so if you had never seen, if, if you didn't know who Sigourney Weaver was and you were just somebody watching this movie for the first time in 1979, when would you have realized that she was the main character and not just somebody on the crew? Well, for me, that would have been the moment that I described where she is standing up for the quarantine because it's a, it's a very, she's very strong on that in a, in a way that was, I think for most people, pretty unexpected at that moment, you know, cause she gender flips. Yeah, I would probably go with either that moment or the one where they are having their crew meeting and she's shouting over, um, I'm forgetting the character's name, but she's 
trying to talk and one of the male crew members is trying to interrupt her and she ends up shouting at him to just shut up and be quiet. Oh yes. That's a good moment too. Yeah. Because that, that also really breaks the female tropes of, you know, being quiet and Mm -hmm. letting the men talk. Um, because she's forcing the attention back to herself. So I'd probably say one of those two. Yeah, I I would probably say that um, I, I think probably when we we start following her by herself once uh, the once the crew kind of goes down, and so she's kind of commanding stuff, and then we we. Because we we're kind of, we kind of follow everybody. We see a little bit of Lambert. We see a little bit of like Dallas. We see you know Ash. We see all of these different characters. We follow them around a little bit, and then it slowly kind of starts. I would say maybe about a third of the way, which I think is maybe when we, they you know a little before around when they break the the protocol. We kind of start focusing in on just Ripley and like what she's doing, and kind mm-hmm. of following her decisions. And so we kind of move off of the others. For me, it was really emphasized when she's talking with uh, the character of uh, Parker and um, Brett. So kind of these two engineering guys and like they're clearly like messing with her in this like, oh, like it'll just take us forever to fix this. And like, no, 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 it won't. And so she she just kind of ignores them. And I think that also shows something that is very interesting about this specific movie, which is these are not BFFs. Nobody on here really likes each other, right? I mean, they're all kind of, they're all colleagues. They all have to work together. And, you know, the two engineering guys, they seem to be friends, but everybody else just kind of just, is just there, right? And so I think part of the horror of this would be like, imagine if, Imagine if this were happening at your work and just random people who you happen to be on shift with are people you're having to make these life and death decisions with. So these aren't adventurers, right? That's kind of one of the things no. that we see through the setting that this is this is not this like Millennium Falcon like you know speed. No, it's a cargo ship, yeah. It it is you know it, it's it's the equivalency of some sort of yeah giant cargo tanker just floating across the Pacific. Which that would actually be a pretty good movie too to have an alien on, like, yeah. But and so, but we have this giant ship and and, and the setting, the colors are just incri- like there are no warm colors, right? It's this very cold to that like reflects this like the coldness of like space. It's very mm-hmm. dingy, right? Mm-hmm. And so nobody's. Um, it would. I'm sure somebody has written this, and I just didn't read it. But, like, the influence that basically Star Wars had on the development of this, the, the one thing I did read was that they were like, we don't want to greenlight this This is a movie. And like, oh, yes, we do. Star Wars made quite a bit of money. But, like, yeah. with the, 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 visual and the visuals in terms of Star Wars, even though it had, it, it had that wonderful sense of, like, it's a dirty, lived-in universe. It wasn't, like, a super clean science fiction. This has that, but, like, to the nth degree, right? Mm-hmm. And especially when you get with the uh, the alien, I think the reason it's different than all the Star Wars aliens, which at least have like, oh, they're like eyes, right? Even in the weirdest Star Wars aliens, they're like, oh, they're the eyes. There's some arms. They're, like, they're, they're still in, pretty much humanoid, with the exception, I guess, of like Jabba. But they're still yeah, like, no, this is a mouth, the darker side. Eyes, and this yeah. is 
this is just this grotesque, and so it, it, you know, it is an alien. It looks like I don't even know how to describe it except being like, it looks so alien. Um, and I think that's what makes it so horrifying, right? Is of course is how bizarre this looks, and that there there's no there are no eyes to look at. Like you just don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely the case. I mean, with Star Wars, it's always meant to be more comical, right? There's the scene with the aliens in the bar, and right there's this playfulness. This was not part of this film. It was meant to be horrifying and realistic, as far as that goes, you know. Definitely. I would say that that griminess also just underscores who they are as characters because... These are blue-collar guys, right? These are not the fancy officers. These these are blue-collar, just the guys who are... I'm in Texas, so I would just say, like, the guys, like, who are the the roughnecks out on the oil rig, right? Like, that's who they are. Mm -hmm. And I loved the fact that the first film did not do all this kind of stupid sexist banter that you might have had, you know, the way that the guys treated the women felt more like they were professional people working together. I mean, yeah, they were, you know, kind of jerks at various times, but you know what I'm talking about? There's often this kind of degrading sexist banter in that kind of, like in the second film, the way that the Marines were. Yeah. Um, I would agree where it it seems like they've moved beyond that. They've seen each other work enough. Mm-hmm. Like you get a sense of backstory with the way that they talk to each other and the way mm-hmm. that they interact. And you're absolutely right that this feeling of grit under your fingernails watching this movie makes it seem more real. Like we probably have met people like each of the crew members. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's because it wasn't, you know, it was written, the part was written originally for a man. And so the script immediately was freed from the need for any of that. I, I, I would highly suspect that that is probably true. Mm-hmm. How, how does Ripley compare to the other females in the movies? And so there, there are not very many of them, uh, but so we have uh, Lambert, who is the navigator in the first one. We have Vasquez, who is the very, like, you know, very, very super masculinized uh, female. And the second one, who's one of the uh, one of the Marines. We have Newt, the little girl. And then we can't forget, uh, we have the queen in mm-hmm. the uh, second one. And also we have uh, the character of Mother, the was what they call the computer program in the first one. They call her Mother. Mm-hmm. So how does how does Ripley compare to some of the other women and females in this uh, in these two movies? My opinion is that they they made all the other females contrastingly um, stereotyped, and I don't know about mother, but the 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 other ones, mother the computer, because that's not obviously the case. But you know, Vasquez stereotype of a certain kind of, of a woman and Lambert stereotype, right? You know, emotional, hysterical, um, kind of loses it, loses her professionalism. And then a little girl is just going to be a little girl who's helpless, but also pretty resourceful um, in her own right. So I, I think that I, that, that the films did that in order to let Ripley stand out. That's my opinion. 
I would agree. Um, I would say that I think in the second film in particular, we kind of see Ripley's character mirrored more in Newt and the Queen, except they're two different sides of her character. <clears throat> right at the beginning of the film, we see Ripley as completely debilitated because she's suffering from PTSD um, from everything she's gone through, mm-hmm. uh, from waking up 50 plus years in the future. So pretty much everybody she knows is gone. Um, and, and so she's kind of lost and alone and trying to find her way just like Newt is. Yes. Uh, like they have an instant connection when they meet. Uh, and eventually it does become more like a mother daughter thing, but I would say, I would argue that initially it's more of a mirroring of each other when they meet that, like they have some of those shots where they're communicating without words, mm-hmm. just like in, in the scene that I mentioned earlier where Ripley is communicating with the Queens of the aliens. Yeah. They're the only two that have actually survived the xenomorphs. Yeah. Yes, and I, I think there's something, an argument to be made for the fact that Ripley, when she dreams about the alien coming out of her own body, is a kind of a motherhood dream. You know, there's maybe some sort of desire for motherhood or fear of motherhood that is then um, taken care of by essentially she becoming the mother of this, this daughter eventually. I just think that's a very interesting, you know, the whole film. Both films are so young in and all the water imagery, all the birthing, you know. So I think there's some deep psychological suggestiveness going on there. Well, and if we're talking about like, well, we'll get to some of that and for some of the other questions. But like, if you look at it that like, yes, this is this very like, there's some incredibly rapey scenes <laughs> in oh, all yes. of these movies. And the fact that like, you know, you have this, I this like face sucker, like squid thing, like attaching yourself to its face. Right. And then you're, you're basically dead. Right. Like you don't come back from that. And then a new creature like explodes out of you and you die. Yeah. Um, pretty much. (laughs) And And Prometheus, the film picks Mm -hmm. this up really well, but the, you know, the more recent film picks up on these tropes anyway. And then you have the very rapey scene where like the, uh, and I completely had forgotten that this had happened because I, I, I enjoy Aliens, but I, it's not like I watch it at the same rate that I do with other things. So I'd actually forgotten a, a couple of things. Like when uh, the android Bishop is like, mm-hmm. no, not Bishop, wrong movie, Ash. Ash is holding her down and is like choking her with like the rolled up magazine. And oh, there are like beauty yes. pictures up. And I'm just like... I, I was I was obviously very disturbed, like you're supposed to be, but I had completely forgotten that, and I had forgotten that he was an android. And yes. so then he gets, like, killed, and you have all of this, like, white goo that's all over everything. Yeah, the, spermous, the sperm-like goo, yeah. And it's just, I'm just sitting there like, oh my gosh, I have to talk yeah. about this on a podcast now, and it's so creepy. But yeah. there's... But the thing is, like, what that happens to her and like she sees and like you see like that's I think the big term for that movie is like the betrayal when she's like 
when she realizes we could have left hours ago, but we thought this per- was a person, right? Like that's yes. why the, that's why the other two don't make it. It's like, well, we can't. We have four people. We can't leave because they only take three. Well, and I kept sitting. I was sitting there going like, I was watching this with my husband. I'm like, well, why don't they just leave the jerk? He's such a jerk. They should just get in and leave him behind. And she, he's like, oh, before you knew he was an android. Yeah, but, or yeah, because I didn't remember. Yeah. And so then he's like, ha ha. Uh, or my husband was like, haha. And so it's so, there's so much in it. And so, but like she, that's an incredibly traumatizing thing. And she takes the moment for like the trauma. And then she's like, but I gotta like, I gotta move on. Right. Like, um, because she has essentially basically in any situation she's in, she, she kind of assumes this responsibility because the other people in charge just kind of abdicate it. Right. Yes. Yeah, they do. And to me, what's so striking about both films is is it, it it makes a very strong argument that courage is not gendered, you know. Yes. And because she is just so courageous, and courage and courage isn't like Vasquez. I mean, and again, I think she was set up as a foil or as a contrast, which is like I'm going to go and blow them up. And I'm not saying that's not courageous, but courage more. That virtue has more to do with like you know the risks and you still go ahead and do it because it's the right thing to do, right? And and she is totally like that. She's not foolhardy um, and and risky. She just does the right thing and is not afraid. It's remarkable. I think you could very. She is a character. I think you could definitely say is wise. Yes, wise and intelligent. You know. And. I will say, Vasquez, I feel like she redeems herself with, like, her and the basically the incompetent, uh, you know, uh, Gorman. They're like, okay, yeah. look, we know we're not going to make this, but we we're can, We're not like, going to make it. And so we, this, so they definitely have their, their sacrificial, like, level of, like, bravery that they have at the yeah, end. they definitely do, yes. Um, so we, we see how Ripley kind of grows, um, and like becomes this much more kind of interesting, powerful character. And we, we into the, like, like, Oh, she is a main character, right? That like, I think that's one of the very interesting twists of that, of the first movie is like, Oh, she's actually the star of this. Um, but what are, how do, do, do we, would y'all say, does her character change because we have two different genres of movie here? So our first one is, is a horror movie. And just think, I mean, it could very easily, if this were happening in a, in a suburban neighborhood, then this would be a John Carpenter film, guys. Like, mm-hmm. and so what, does she behave differently or does that, do we think that reflects on her character, the difference between the horror movie for the first one and essentially this kind of slightly roided up 80s move, like almost Rambo movie, which is still very good, but this kind of roided up war movie that we get for the second movie. Leah, what are your thoughts on that? Well, (laughs) I was thinking about this um, earlier today, actually just trying to break it down. I think for the most part, I view her the same, but whereas in the first film we spend what, the first third to a half of the film, kind of realizing that she's the main character. In the second film, we get more of her individuality. We're kind of focused more on Ripley because we know from the get-go she's important. Um, so I'm not sure if that's exactly her changing 
because she is always a leader. She is always strong. She's always overcoming something, um, mostly to her detriment, um, personal detriment, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not sure if she is herself growing or our perception of her is growing and changing from one movie to the next. Yeah, I had a similar response in that I thought that the second movie gave us the chance to see her in a maternal role. The first movie does not, unless you count her being maternal toward the cat, right? Um, it's Which is not insignificant. But to me, James Cameron obviously was saying in writing Aliens that we want to see a more traditionally feminine side of her to know that she is motivated not just by destroying the aliens, but by protecting um, people from this destructive force. And, and, and so, yeah, I felt very much like it was not as so much a development thing as, as we got to see who she, more of who she really is. Okay. Well, I, I pretty much agree with those. I just, I, it was something I wanted to kind of toss out there. I, what, do y'all see anything in the fact that she, you know, she has, not even I don't even know what to call it like she has like a couple of lingering glances with the character Hicks who like shows her how to use some guns and then so you kind of have this oh yeah and so you kind of have this the first the second movie is this very kind of like libertarian like pro-military like protection of the nuclear family you know and these guns are going to save us for like um because we have we have our father figure we have our we have our mother figure we have our child right and they're kind of being you know taken away and so that's considered this like very important thing uh but still it it is ripley that goes back right it is it's not the father figure who sends the woman to be safe and then he goes back for the child right no he goes and she's like no i am going back and so there's he gets disabled in fact and so she it's her or nobody yeah and so it's yeah it's it's very very interesting to me um what are some of the what are some of the allegorical things that we that y'all feel might be going on in these two movies, either feminine or otherwise? Um, are you asking more archetypal? Yeah, archetypal, or, okay. or mm-hmm. is there anything that we're seeing that we're like, aha, this is clearly a metaphor for X? I, I said allegory is a generic literature term, but you know anything that falls within that various. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole mothering thing, like we discussed at the beginning, is so. Jungian archetypal so primal there's this kind of we're meant to identify with it on a visceral level which is really why in a sense both these films have to be horror films because when you're dealing with those deep archetypal experiences of being human being male or female they're felt more than they are rationalized or experienced in the in the brain they're felt in the gut and so I, that's, I go back to what Leah said earlier about how so little information is, is um, conveyed via text or via, um, dialogue in that scene where they're deep down levels. That's also important, right? Where all the eggs are and it's mother to mother combat. Uh, but, but the combat doesn't just go by violence. It's, it's first kind of cunning, like I'm trying to slip away by threatening your egg, but I'm not going to kill them at first, you know, even though it's not like she would have any problem doing that, but she's trying to be smart and crafty about it. 
um, and save the weaponry and get out of that place. So I just, I appreciate that kind of connection that is built with the audience um, because it doesn't dumb it down either. I mean, there's a way of doing those kind of archetypal connections that dumb it down. And I don't feel like either, either one of these films did that. Yeah, I feel like you have to, you, you see it and you feel it, but it's it's not beating you over the head with yes. it. Like, and like you said, you can feel it kind of on a visceral level, like it, it goes straight to the lizard brain and actually like skips the like the conscious thought process, right? So you're just... It does. And especially, I, I find these movies, one, they're scary, they just are. But I have a, pe- ladies, if you want to freak me the H out, the way you do it is you have a flying insect. Any flying insect oh. that can get close to my face is just... I moved to Louisiana. Wait, you live in you live in Texas. I do live in Don't Texas. Don't you have those flying cockroaches there? Like, they have them in Louisiana. Uh, so I have lived places where they had those, and I once... Um, and so one time, I was living with a friend about a month before I got married because... I was out of my old apartment, so my, my wedding dress was in the room, and I, this flying cockroach came in, and I was just like, gotta burn the wedding dress, guys, because I'm never going back in there. <laughs> like, we'll just, we'll find something else, because, um, and so I, so, and so the fact that these things look, have, have this very, like, obviously insect-like uh, appearance with this, like, little proboscis that, like, comes out, like, this extra, mm-hmm. like, jaw, like, they look so insect, Yeah. They look so much like an insect that it just freaks me out um, to an mm-hmm. nth degree because I'm, I'm just a petrified of flying insects. And it can be really big, but if it is on the ground, it's like, okay, it's on the ground. It's not near my face. Like, But even something That's tiny flying. that can like fly, that can get near my face, I just, I become the most stereotypical woman. And I, and I own it. And mm-hmm. I own it that I, I do when that happens. Um but I think which is all the more reason why Ripley is so amazing. She chooses to go back to that terrible place yes. and confront that bug, those bug like creatures. It, I don't know if I believe that she would have done that, but you know, <laughs> she, she did. Right. She's the bug killer in the family. I'm the bug killer in my family. My husband can't kill bugs. She's the bug killer <laughs> in the family. I think that that is, I think that is an honor that any woman would wear very proudly. <laughs> so yeah, that what that's not me either. I would agree that that's that's one of the creepiest things to me of these movies as well, is that oh they're just so gross. It's just I I'm I'm falling into that stereotype too. But it's just so gross. When she was going back, I was like shouting at the TV screen. Why are you doing I'm that? Going back, yeah. Yeah. And you know, what I noticed this time with aliens is that the producer is Gail Ann Hurd, who does The Walking Dead. And I've, you know, I I'm, have been a fan of The Walking Dead. I don't like the direction it's gone lately. But she always talks about how they're constantly pushing the envelope, what AMC will let them get away with in terms of gore and, you know, scenes with the zombies. And so that didn't surprise me at all. So, oh, Galeon Hurd is the executive director of, of Aliens because those scenes are just so deliberately and wonderfully gross, right? The saliva dripping out and it's just, you know, the acid blood, the whole thing is just over it's, the top. It's incredibly but, visceral. And onto the thing with the acid blood, uh, I find it really funny that 
out of all of the things that are ridiculous, you know, that, like, there are things that I like, oh, yes, you can go into, like, this sleep and be 800 years old, but as long as you're in this pod, you're okay, kind of thing. That, And, by the way, I find Classic sci-fi. I find it interesting, one, that there, there's no, it's interesting, there's no hyperdrive in this world, right? Which is something that every other science fiction just, like, glosses over, like, oh, yeah, you can just go light speed and it's fine. And, you know, you can travel the distance of universes in seconds, right? Like... And so, one, it's interesting that they, they, not only are they a very gritty show in the sense that, like, you can tell it, but, like, that's a, that feels a very, like a very real thing, right? Like, there's no hyperdrive, like, you're going to sleep. But everybody, nobody seems to mind it. There's no, like, oh, I'm going to be asleep for 80 years now. They're just like, oh, yeah. So it, it's a normal part of their existence, but it's still not, like, you know, warp, you know, go to warp, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the physics of that seem more possible to me ultimately than the physics of warp drive. And, but I don't know enough about physics to make that statement, but there are a lot of other science fiction that on the, when it's on the more realistic side, that is something that they'll speculate about, like a cryo freeze, you know, just as I know. Um, so my question, uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, you know, a, a year ago, the three of us were talking about how awesome Leia was, is. And so maybe in a year, we'll talk about how awesome Sarah Connor is. But how, Yay! But how is, my question now, so how is Ripley, how is she similar or different from some of these other, like, pillars of sci-fi female heroines? And if there's another, if there are two, if there are more besides Leia and Sarah Connor, please add them. But those were the, like, I feel like that that's, they're like, we're a Christian podcast. They're like the Trinity of female, of like sci-fi female heroines. And so you have, you have Leia who starts out, you know, she is a princess and she has to be rescued. And we quickly find out when we meet her that she's actually really awesome. But, you know, she's in this very soft feminine, has this long hair, flowy outfit, uh, very different um, than obviously Ripley. And uh, I think later on, uh, Sarah Connor. Uh, so, what what might she have in common or uh, different than some of these ladies? I mean, from the get-go, um, she's different because she's not put into those feminine positions, right? Like, as you said with Leia, automatically we hear her as princess. So we're, auto- we're already thinking damsel in distress. Um. Whereas with Ripley, she's working on a tanker. She's bumping elbows with these blue collar guys. She, as we've said before, she's kind of the perfect balance between these masculine and feminine tropes. And nobody really seems to mind. Nobody in the world of the film and nobody in the audience. It's not jarring. Um. Yes, and and Sigourney Weaver is such an interesting choice for her character because she is definitely, you know, a beautiful woman, but she's not that classical Hollywood beautiful, right? And she's more distinctive looking in in a lot of ways. And and to me, that was a really important choice that separates her from even, you know, arguably Linda Hamilton, but certainly Carrie Fisher – and there's none of those scenes with her in a bikini. I mean, she yeah, she's wearing the underwear, but it's not the same thing as Princess Leia and that that bikini thing, um, you know. <laughs> so 
I, I like that about the difference between her and those those other two. But Linda Hamilton in um, Terminator is just my all-time favorite. So I'll, I have so much to say about that, but I won't say that right now. Save it for, save it for when we do this next year, Christina. You bet. Um, well, I, yeah, I, I was watching this and I kept thinking like, you know, Ripley is, she's a super famous heroine. And in fact, there, she's so famous that there is a, um, there's a crater named after her in space, right? Um, I did not know that. Yeah, so there's a crater named uh, after her on uh, the moon of, and I'm just going to say it, and I'm going to be, because I'm a rebel, the planet Pluto. So Pluto, <laughs> the planet, um, its moon, it has a crater uh, named Ripley. And I think the actual, I think Pluto actually also has a like a, a canyon or a gorge or some some something that's also named after the Nostromo, which, by the way, apparently uh, is a Conrad novel, and I did not know that until I started looking all of this up. Yep. I've never read it. I can't get through it. I started it a couple of times. I mean, it's a Conrad novel. I mean, I feel like that's 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 what I always have whenever I try to read him. But you know, to each to each his own. So I, I think we are all going to have the same answer to this, but going to throw it out there because this is a huge trend in for strong females now generally always have to be Mary Sue's, right? That they are, they're perfectly beautiful. They, ha their hair never gets messed up, right? Like they're, they never really have to learn anything. They can do everything immediately and they're always perfect. So I, and are, are, is uh, Ripley and Mary Sue? I think we pretty much discovered <laughs> through this conversation, she most definitely is not. And the scene in Aliens where she, uh, you know, there's definitely some sexual attraction between the two of them, but he's, you know, he's enjoying showing her how to use the weapon. And he's like, well, that's enough. She's like, no, show me how to use the rest of it because I need to learn this. And she ends up using all of the aspects of that big gun. That's huge. And she does make mistakes and she, she does things that are, are not perfect. Like, I'm sorry, but her tank driving is awful um, in the second That's hilarious. film. <laughs> like she's running into walls. She does run over a couple aliens, which is great, but uh, like it's definitely not the best. Like she's, she's, a good character. She's a solid character. She's flawed. She's relatable. I completely agree. Yeah. So if this were because this is my um, this is my general rant, as I think most people remember from the Leia episode, or they might remember from the Leia episode last year, the character of Ray, I greatly dislike because she is a Mary Sue, right? She she can do everything the first time, and so you know, if Ray were in this movie, like. You know, she'd be using the little tank to do backflips and, like, aerials with it the first time she, like, tried it. Sarah, Sarah, she has the force. You got to get over it. She's got the force. Yeah, she has the force, and the force the force is magic, because, let's be honest, Star Wars is really a fantasy series. Um, mm -hmm. So she has this magic that lets it all happen, and this is my hill that I will die on. Uh, but, <laughs> so I... So I love that Ripley is not a Mary Sue, and we because we so frequently I find it 
women are demeaned to and our characters and how we are represented is demeaned because it is presumed that it's presumed that uh, that I can't fight be that someone can't be strong and be flawed right like we see flawed male characters all the time but and they can be strong and they can have good things mm -hmm. and they can have but women we seem to have this basically that we are we are these perfect Mary Sue's and nothing can go wrong or that they're just kind of helpless. And it, it, and I think that that is what appeals about the three ladies that we have been talking about and what we, and what we will undoubtedly talk about for Sarah Connor next year is that the, these women have flaws and that they are things that gr they can grow on and they are admirable. Right. And so rather than being a character for self insertion, she is someone for me to look up to and admire. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's uh, something that's really wonderful. Do y'all, uh, we're coming up on a little, uh, about an hour. Do y'all have anything else y'all really want to, want to add that we, that we haven't talked about yet? No? Okay. Well, um, let's move on to the, uh, next part. Uh, the, our kind of, our recommendations. If you have, if you have liked this or you have something that you, uh, or something that we think is related that we think about, like, we'll, we'll let you know, listeners, and you can go have as awesome interests as we do. So, uh, Leo, what are you oh, recommending? I, <clears throat> I, sorry, I just thought of something I wanted oh, to add. Oh, no, go ahead. Yes, please, I Christina. I think the, the, um, the end of the first movie, when Ripley has finally gotten rid of this horrible alien and she goes into this the hypersleep, it struck me this time as a complete reversal of the Sleeping Beauty motif, right? She is the one who ah. slaughtered her own dragons and ends up then going into into sleep rather than, you know, somebody else had to do it for her. I think that's amazing. That That is very true. And the thing I actually, I remember from watching, I actually remember thinking very closely related at the end of the first movie and the beginning of the second, I remember looking at it and being like, she looks so beautiful and perfect and feminine when it's just that close up of her face. Yes. Um... This and I just feel like that was deliberate. Yeah, this beautiful, perfect, lovely, oh, she's so gorgeous. It has this very frail, and then, like, and, yeah, it has to have been deliberate. And so it's, it, it, it's like, oh, this is very different because it, it comes and it really emphasizes that. So, yes, I, I agree with you on that, that I, and I totally see that. Okay, didn't mean to interrupt the no, recommendations. No, that's fine, that's fine. We're shooting from the hip here to uh, borrow a Texas uh, metaphor. So, Leah, what would uh, what would be your, one of your recommendations for listeners? Um, well, I am actually recommending another sci-fi classic, which is Star Trek. But I'm being specific. I'm I am recommending Star Trek: The Next Generation because there are just some fantastic female characters in this series. Uh, there's Dr. Beverly Crusher. There's Deanna Troy. Um, there is Tasha Yar, who is head of security. Um, and we we can't forget Guinan, uh, played by uh, Ruby Goldberg. Um, I was just listening to the CFP prog uh, podcast on the Star Trek, and they bashed Tasha Yar on there pretty hard. <laughs> like That's a really good I, podcast. <laughs> it is a great podcast you guys should go and listen to it um, <laughs> i i will agree that there are problems with tasha yar however i do think that she is still an important female character to exist in a sci-fi 
I agree. serious, especially one as popular as Star Trek. Um, and, and of course, there are so many other just great female characters throughout the series. But I, I've just, I've been watching it lately and just really binge watching it, to be honest. Um, and I'm getting very passionate about these female characters. So I want to recommend It's a great that. show. It's a really great show. I, I have very fond memories of, uh, for our younger listeners, I don't know how many they ha- uh, we have, back in the day, there weren't eight trillion channels and you couldn't record and people only had one TV. So you're really just stuck watching one show. And so I remember my mother uh, watching Star Trek avidly and she, she absolutely uh, loved it. And I will also say that I, I love uh, the fact that out of all of the, the hosts and panelists we have on that we we can have wonderfully like spirited disagreement and it's all okay. So it's, I think that that makes for a very good and healthy dialogue. Uh, Christina, what are you recommending? Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit. You could, you know, say fast forward because Terminator two is my all time favorite movie. It just is. It's so amazing. I love Linda Hamilton in that. So I'm recommending that movie and Anything that James Cameron uh, directs is also something that I love. But um, that's and I'm recommending this in part because there's a new Terminator film coming out that he's directing. That's also Linda Hamilton is starring in. And I can't wait for it. Awesome. Well, I am recommending something that will probably sound like quite a stretch for people. But I am recommending that our listeners play Dungeons and Dragons and... The reason I'm recommending this is one, I've been playing it a lot uh, recently, and it's a lot of fun, but it's the closest that I will ever get to getting to be Ellen Ripley, because I can create a character who is powerful, smart, and has a lot of these things, but one of the, but the most important thing that we've, that it has is something we've been talking about, is that Ripley isn't perfect, right? She grows, she has flaws, but she, she has flaws, and she, um, and that's what makes her a fully fleshed out, interesting character. And if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, you can't have your character be perfect at everything. It's against the rules. You have to have them be really good at some things, but that means that they're going to have a lower score on something else. And so you have to decide what is important to you and what kind of character do you want to have? Do you want to have somebody who's a really strong or do you want to have someone who's really wise? Do you want to have an in-between? And so I, I find that very, I find that a lot of fun and very interesting and that that's what it made me think of is if you want to if you want to live a an amazing uh awesome female and do and be like ellen ripley you can do that every week through playing dungeon and dragons or any other uh tabletop rpg game so thank you so much for listening to the christian feminist podcast we'd love to hear from you if you have a topic or reading recommendation for future shows or if you just want to drop us a line you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Leah Henning and Christina Lake, I'm Sarah Clister. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss Marie Kondo and her murderous attitude towards books. Until then, in in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.